Luke 10, verses 38-42. Now as they went on their way, <clears throat> Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the inspired and infallible and thus inerrant word of God. Let's pray. Father, our minds are only means to an end, means to getting to our heart. And so we pray that what we understand with our minds this morning, you would cause us to love with our hearts. You did the first miracle by inspiring Luke to write these words and present reality before our minds. And now we pray that this morning you would do a new miracle of opening our affections and awakening our hearts to love what we see. Cause us to see what Mary saw in Jesus 2,000 years ago. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be deeply and internally content? Do you want the longings of your heart and your will to be satisfied? Do you want to experience the lack of heartfelt worry and fear? due to not having what you want and need, and rather be at rest because you possess all that you want and need? Or just the same way to ask that question is, do you want to be happy? I'm going to assume that the answer to, every, to that question from everyone in this room is yes, because I agree with Blaise Pascal when he wrote these words. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man even of those who hang themselves. But it's not just the world's greatest philosophers and minds that have realized this. The Bible also assumes that the motive for human action is a desire to be happy. 
And we don't have time to go into some of the more lengthy biblical support for that. But turn for a second to Psalm 147, where you see a glimpse of it there. In Psalm 147, verse 1, we read this. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. So the psalmist gives us a command. Praise the Lord. But then he gives the reason why we should praise the Lord. For, because, it is good to do so. And then he defines what he means. Why is it good to praise the Lord? For, because, it, praising the Lord, is pleasant. And a song of praise is fitting. So the psalmist gives two foundational motivations for why we should praise God. One, because it will bring pleasure to you. And two, because God deserves to be praised. So he's saying, you want to be happy, don't you? You want to experience pleasure, don't you? Then I'm telling you how to do it. Praise the Lord. He appeals to our desire to be happy as the grounds for why we should praise God. He's assuming such a desire for happiness exists and that it is good. Therefore, he appeals to it as a valid motive. Okay, but what does any of that have to do with our text? Why does it matter? It matters because the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, is designed by Luke and the Holy Spirit through him to show us how to be happy. God is telling us how to satisfy the deepest craving of our souls for happiness. The previous passage about the Good Samaritan is about how a disciple ought to live and act towards others, how a disciple ought to live in service towards their neighbors. And the point of our passage this morning is to tell us this. All of your service is utterly and totally futile unless it is sourced in a satisfaction with the presence of Jesus. In other words, it's saying, love the Savior more than his service. This text is ultimately to answer the question, how can I be happy? The central and climactic point of this story is in these words of Jesus. One thing is necessary. So what I want to do this morning is ask and answer two questions. One, necessary for what? And two, what is the one thing that is necessary? So first, necessary for what? Necessary for what end? Whenever we talk about something being necessary, we always, even if we don't clearly state it because we think it's obvious, we always presuppose or assume some end or purpose or some desired goal. That's what the term necessary by definition implies. For example, if I were to say to you, money is necessary, what would be your response? Before you can agree with my statement or disagree with it, what you should ask is, money is necessary for what? To be poor? 
to run 15 miles per hour? Money is necessary to be loved? What are you claiming money is necessary for? Now, there could be many different things money is necessary for, but I'll just give this one for example. Money is necessary to go to the store and buy milk. In other words, money is a necessary means to the end of buying milk from the grocery store. So whenever we ask, someone tells us that this is necessary, what we should automatically be asking is, necessary for what? What's it necessary for? Okay, so now with that in mind, let's look at the text. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary. Now this is the same Martha and Mary, whose brother is Lazarus, whom Jesus will raise from the dead. And we know from John's Gospel that they lived in Bethany, a town a few miles outside of Jerusalem. So here comes Jesus with his disciples as they're journeying, and they come to Martha's house, and she welcomes them. And as a good host would, she begins to serve them and prepare the meal for them all to eat. And so we pick up verse 38. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. From the beginning, one thing becomes very clear. Mary and Martha act in completely different ways. When Jesus walks into their house, Mary immediately sits at his feet and listens to his teaching. She drops everything around her and goes to the Lord. She consumes herself with Jesus' presence. But Martha, on the other hand, is distracted with much serving. And now, it's not wrong to serve people. Hospitality isn't a bad thing. We're actually commanded to serve people in other places in Scripture. So it's not Luke's point to say, hospitality is bad and you should never do it. The point is that while Mary places her full attention and focus on Jesus, Martha is distracted. But distracted from what? That very word implies that the attention and focus of someone is drawn away from one thing and toward another thing. We know what she was distracted toward, much serving. But what was she distracted from? What was her attention and focus drawn away from? The word but in verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving, signals back to Mary's action. In other words, when Jesus walked in, Mary was attentive to him. She was drawn and attracted and inclined to Jesus. But Martha was distracted from Jesus, unlike Mary. She did not sit down and stare at him. She did not hold on to every word that proceeded from his mouth. She was distracted. It doesn't matter very much what she was distracted with. The point is that she was distracted. Distracted away from the presence of Jesus. Now in the second half of verse 40, we begin to see 
what Martha longs for and what it is that the one thing is necessary for. So she's annoyed with Mary because she's left alone to serve, and she comes up to Jesus with this complaint. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. So she comes up to Jesus and basically says, Lord, don't you care about me? Are you not concerned with what is good for me? Don't you want me to be helped? What's Martha seeking? She's seeking that which she thinks will make her most helped or happy. Notice in verse 40, Martha uses the language of care and help. And what those words ultimately come down to is the well-being of a person. When she says, Lord, don't you care? She's saying, do you have no desire for my well-being? That's what care means. To care for someone is to desire and provide them with that which is necessary for their good, for their happiness. When you care about your child and they have a cavity infecting their mouth, you're going to take them to the dentist because you're convinced that even though the dentist is painful, it will ultimately be for the child's good and their happiness in the long run. When you care for someone, your desire, your goal, is not for their pain, ultimately, but for their happiness. And the same is true when Mark says, tell Mary then to help me. What is help? Except delivering someone from that which threatens their well-being and providing them with that which satisfies it. That is what help is. So she's saying, Lord, don't you want me to be happy? Now let me say this clearly and matter-of-factly. The desire to be happy is not evil. It is good. But the root of Martha's evil, of her sin, is disclosed in the next sentence that comes out of her mouth. Verse 40. Therefore, tell her to help me serve dinner. The therefore indicates the way that Martha perceives her desire for happiness will be satisfied. Namely, in serving dinner, or whatever service she's doing, more easily and efficiently. She says, Lord, don't you care about me? Assumption. Of course you do. Therefore, because you want me to be happy, therefore, satisfy my desire for happiness by telling Mary to help me with dinner. In other words, Martha is convinced that if she can just get Mary to help her serve, her longing for contentment will be satisfied, at least for the time being. And the root of her sin which Jesus is about to correct, is in feeling that this is the thing that can make her happy. That this is the thing that can give her the contentment that her soul longs for. And so in verse 41, we get Jesus' response to Mary's complaint, Martha's complaint. He says, verse 41, Martha, Martha. Jesus loves Martha, 
The repetition of her name is a Jewish way of showing affection and intimacy. So even though he's about to rebuke her, he's going to do so in the most tender of ways. His aim in standing in opposition to her request is not because he wishes harm on her, but precisely because he cares for her, the very thing she doubted. He is going to crush her false hopes for happiness and tell her where it can really be found. And so he says, verse 41, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Let's go back to the original question. Necessary for what end? From Jesus' words, we can tell that he sees that Martha thinks many things are necessary. Because he says, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. In other words, Jesus is saying, Martha, you think that many things are necessary, but you're wrong. One thing is necessary. In other words, one thing is necessary, not many things. That's the flow of thought. And so in trying to figure out what the one thing is necessary for, all we have to do is figure out what Martha thought the many things were necessary for. Because Jesus tells her that those many things will not get her to her desired goal. Only one thing will. And what did Martha think that the many things were necessary for? Well, remember Martha's train of thought. That the many things were necessary came in the form of anxiety and troubledness. So the answer is that Martha thought that the many things could give her freedom from anxiety and troubledness. But what is anxiety? except a feeling of worry or fear about not having something that you think is necessary for your well-being. That to be anxious is to feel, I must have this thing or I cannot be happy. And the internal troubledness that Jesus refers to, I think has the same meaning in the context. So to state it negatively, Martha thought that the many things could relieve her from the negative experience of trouble and internal turmoil. That's what she thought the many things could get rid of. But if we just insert the opposites of anxiety and troubledness, we can state positively what she was seeking. And the answer is this. Martha thought that the presence of many things was necessary to make her happy to bring her to the experience, not of stressful worry, but of joyful peace and satisfaction. So stated negatively, she wanted the absence of internal pain and worry, which means, stated positively, she wanted the presence of internal contentment and rest, or just another name for that, happiness. 
And Jesus says that the many things can never give her what she's seeking. One thing can. Therefore, in answer to the first question, Jesus answers, one thing is necessary to be happy. Now, only one question remains. What is the one thing that is necessary for happiness? Now, before we try to answer that, let me draw your attention to something for a second. Jesus says one thing is necessary. But just because one thing is necessary does not mean that only one thing is necessary. That's why we make the distinction between necessary and sufficient. Something can be necessary, but not sufficient. A sufficient condition is a condition that, if it is met, guarantees the result. It suffices. An example of a sufficient condition would be in the case of a square. If something has only four equal sides, then that is a sufficient condition to make it a square. Four equal sides suffices to make a square. An example of a necessary condition, on the other hand, would be in the case of fire. If you want to build a fire, oxygen is a necessary condition for there to be a fire. But the mere presence of oxygen does not guarantee a fire. There's more than one necessary condition, such as dry wood and a match. Okay, so what's the point? The point is that even though Jesus says one thing is necessary, I'm convinced that he means only one thing is necessary. Notice, he contrasts one thing with many things. He contrasts a singular thing with a plurality of things. So that what he's ultimately saying is this, Martha, you think that a plurality of things is necessary to make you happy. But you're wrong. A singular thing is necessary. Now, if Jesus had intended to communicate that a certain thing is necessary, while there also being more than one thing necessary, then his contrast between one thing and many things wouldn't make any sense. His point is to critique or correct what Martha thinks. But if that's what he meant, then there would be no correction needed because Martha would be right. Many, or more than one, thing would in fact be necessary. His answer would not be a critique of her view at all. So when Jesus says one thing is necessary, he's saying only one thing is necessary. Okay, so I ask again. What is the only thing necessary? The clarity comes in Jesus' last sentence, second half of verse 42. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The good portion is the one thing that is necessary. Therefore, if we want to know what the one thing is, then we need to know what the good portion is. Two clues from the context are given. One, Mary chose it. And two, 
Martha tried to take Mary away from it. So first, what did Mary choose? Verse 39. She chose to, quote, sit at the Lord's feet and listen to his teaching. She was not like Martha, distracted away from Jesus. She was intently fixed upon him. Second, Jesus' statement that the good portion will not be taken away from Mary is referring back to verse 40, where Martha tells him to tell Mary to help her with dinner. Jesus responds, no. She will not be taken away from my presence for the sake of dinner. Therefore, the good portion is the presence of Jesus. Now at this point, someone might object and say, I think that the one thing necessary is the Word of God, not the presence of Jesus. But the reason I don't say that the only thing necessary is the Word of God is because it's too vague. It's too easily misunderstood. And the reason I make a distinction between the written word of God and the person of Jesus is because there can be a tendency to love the word without loving God, of whom the word speaks. I'm forcing the question to this. Is the one thing that is necessary the word of God or the God of the word? There can be many reasons for loving the Word. There can be many reasons for desiring and delighting in and knowing the Word of God that are absolute idolatry and not worship. I'll give you a few. Maybe pride in knowing more than others. Or praise of man for appearing to truly love God because you're devoted to His Word. Perhaps money through a successful Bible-saturated ministry. Or maybe it's love of logical argumentation, such as in the letters of Paul. Or, I'll make God happy if I just give him the time of day to read what he wrote. I'm doing God a favor. Or perhaps one might love the Bible because of the life and society that it produces if its precepts are followed like a human rights-protecting constitutional government, or a good marriage. And the list could go on and on. But there's another danger. Not only is it death to love the Bible instead of God, but it's also death to claim to love Christ and His nearness apart from the Word. To do so is to deceive yourself because the essential means to the end of Jesus' presence is the Word of God. The words and sentences and paragraphs do not contain life and value and happiness-making in themselves. They don't. Jesus alone inherently has the happiness-producing value that we long for. But... The words and sentences and paragraphs are the means which God has appointed to mediate the happiness-producing value 
of the presence of Jesus to us. So it's the person of Jesus who satisfies our souls, not black marks on a page. But without those black marks on the page, we will never have Jesus because it is precisely through those black marks on the page that God has revealed his glory in Christ. For example, in John 5, John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, Jesus says this to the religious Pharisees of his day who knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand. He says, John 5, starting in verse 39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, you go to the scriptures. You go to the written words of God and you don't get it. They're not an end in themselves. They're a means to an end. A means of getting to me. The scriptures, the written words of God, are not an end in themselves. They are a means of communicating to us the value and beauty and all-satisfying wonder of the person of Jesus Christ in the gospel. So I just want to quote something from John Gerstner. He was R.C. Sproul's most influential professor. He says this. Now this Bible isn't like the certain religion in India where they actually call their holy book Mr. Grumpf and they will genuflect to it. There's nothing sacred about this book. I have so many notes on mine that I'm not going to throw it on the ground and trample on it, but I wouldn't be committing any sacrilege, except that it would be a waste of a good Bible and money and such things as that, and that would be a sin. But there wouldn't be anything sinful in it, as if I were actually committing a sacrilege. This Bible is just paper and print. That's all. Some people have even teased us about worshipping a paper pope. We don't worship this book. We don't call this Mr. Scripture. And we don't identify it as any Pope. No. We go further than that. We say, this book is God. This is the Word of God. Oh, not the paper. As I say, shall I tear it? That print? I could spit on it. No. Nothing sacred about that, but what it says, and especially here in the Greek text, and any faithful translation, my friends, it gives you God speaking. The Holy Spirit who inspired this book speaks through this book. So if I had to summarize what I think Jesus is saying in our passage, it would be this. One thing is necessary to be happy. 
the teaching of who I am. Or to say it another way, one thing is necessary. The truth about who I am. Or just to make it really simple and get to the heart of what he's saying, one thing is necessary to be happy. Me. Therefore, in getting back to our text, Mary was not sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his teaching because she was fascinated with how he used words. Rather, she did so because the feet were the feet of Jesus and because the words were the words of Jesus. She was not fixed on the structure of words and sentences and not upon the things that the words protected, such as do not murder. Rather, she was transfixed on the person of Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, wherever he was, she would be also. And whatever he said, she would cling to with all of her might. She was not delighting in Jesus as a means to an end, but as an end in himself. Martha. Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary to be happy. Jesus didn't say, make me your priority. He didn't say, make me number one. Put me first, as if there's a series of things lined up for your happiness, and Jesus is just supposed to be first in line. He didn't say that. He says, have me and nothing else. Don't make me first in a lineup. Make me everything. There are not multiple things. There are not a plurality of things that are necessary to satisfy your aching heart. Only one thing is necessary. If Jesus were standing behind this pulpit, he would say, I have one goal for you, me. That's what I think this text is saying. And so, what I want to do in the time that we have left is address something that's probably on some of your minds, or at least should be. Namely, if it's true that the only thing necessary to satisfy us and still the waves of discontentment and anxiety and worry and pain is the person of Jesus himself, and if it's true that if we seek our contentment in anything other than Jesus, we will never find what we're seeking, happiness, if that's true, then how ought we to relate and think about creation. How should we experience and feel towards all that which is not by nature God? So if you have your Bible open, let's turn to Psalm 16 for a second. Psalm 16. Verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Preserve me, O God, 
for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So you are my Lord and you are my good. That is, as my Lord, you govern all the good that comes to me and you are the good that comes to me. When David says, I have no good apart from you, he means, God, I do not delight in or perceive as precious and valuable anything or anyone apart from you. You are the only one who, by virtue of who you are, tastes good to me. Nothing else. But now look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Why is verse 3 not a contradiction of verse 2? David says, God, I have no good apart from you. And then in the next breath says, all my delight is in your people. What's he saying? I think he's saying this. God, I said that I have no good. I have no delight in anything apart from you. So that when I say all my delight is in your people, you would not think me an idolater. You alone are the one who delights me. And when I see people who delight in you, they are my delight because you are their delight. In other words, what delights me about your people is that you are their delight. You are my good, and I have no good apart from you. Therefore, if there is none of you in this people, then I want nothing to do with this people. Do you hear what that's saying? Do you hear how God is telling us to relate to everything that is not himself? He's telling us that we ought to taste nothing as good unless we're tasting him. We are to perceive nothing as beautiful unless we're perceiving him. We are to experience nothing as pleasurable unless we're experiencing Him. We ought not to adore anything unless we're adoring it because we're adoring Christ through it. Everything in existence is a means to an end except for one thing. So am I saying that we should not delight in or find as precious and beautiful anything that is not God? Am I saying that we should not be happy in the creation at all? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying this. We should only find happiness in something insofar as we are finding happiness in Christ through it. 
We are to love created gifts from God only insofar as we are gaining God through them. And we are to grieve the loss of things only insofar as we are losing a measure of God's presence in losing the gift. Nothing, absolutely nothing and no one should be loved for their own sake except God. If anything that is by nature, not God, tastes good to us, then it should only taste good to us because we are tasting more of God through it. To my knowledge, St. Augustine said it the shortest and best when he wrote these words. He loves thee too little, O God, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. What's Augustine saying? He's saying, if you love something or someone without the precise reason for loving them, being that you are experiencing more of God through them, then you are not loving properly. You are sinning. He's saying, if you enjoy something or someone to any degree without the reason for that enjoyment, being that you are enjoying God through the experience of the gift, then you love God too little. You are sinning. He loves thee too little, O God, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not as a means to an end, not for thy sake. Jonathan Edwards captured this truth well when he wrote the following words. God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saint. He is the portion of their souls. He is their wealth and treasure, their food and life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death, and to which they are to rise to at the end of the world. The Lord God is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem, and is the river of the water of life that runs, and the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints. And the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. 
They will enjoy the angels and will enjoy one another. But that which they shall enjoy in the angels or in each other or in anything else whatsoever that will yield them delight and happiness will be what can be seen of God in them. End quote. There's so much in this world that is vying for our attention and affections and saying, you must have me, you must have me, you must have me. I am necessary for your happiness. If you want to be happy, if you want to be content, if you want to be satisfied, then you must have me. That's what they're saying. And they're all liars. They all say, unless you have me, you cannot be happy. I am necessary for you. And they're all liars because only one thing is necessary to be happy. Jesus. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray that you would come right now and in the days of our life ahead. And you would cause our one desire and prayer in everything else that we desire and pray to be this. One thing do I ask. And one thing I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord by the presence of the Holy Spirit in order to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus Christ and to inquire after who he is all the days of our life. Because only in Jesus' presence is there fullness of joy, and only at his right hand are there pleasures forevermore.